If you've been raised in a Bible teaching church or what we often call an evangelical church, you've probably heard many, many times the phrase personal relationship with Christ. We often say we want people to have a personal relationship with Christ. We want you to know Christ. We want you to walk with Christ. We want you to work for Christ. We want you to truly worship Christ. We don't want you to just be part of a series of religious actions and steps. We want you to truly know and be known by the God that created you. We often also say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Now, technically, it is a religion. And James himself talked about what pure religion is, caring for the orphan and the widow and so forth. So Christianity, don't kid yourself, is a religion. But when we say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Again, we're pushing people away from just the ritual, the forms. We want people to walk close to the Lord. And we have at our disposal passages like Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is quoted in Matthew 22, where our Lord taught us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is a passage that reminds us that we don't just know God intellectually. We don't just believe in God, although we do those things. And we don't just obey God, although obedience is necessary. We love God. We want to love God with our heart, soul, body, mind, strength. And in this respect, it's true. We want to have a personal relationship with the God who created us. The Bible advocates for a personal relationship. However... However, the Bible does not advocate for a privatized faith. And this is the mistake that emphasizing the personal relationship with Christ and not emphasizing the corporate relationship that we have with Christ can lead people to fall into the trap of a privatized faith. So we have many people that say, hey, I love Jesus, but I don't need to be part of a church. I don't need to be under the authority of elders and pastors. You know, I I can listen to podcasts. There's all kinds of great Christian teaching out there. I can download all kinds of great Christian worship music. I, I have a prayer closet at home. I can pray by myself. There's lots of charities I can support. I have a personal relationship with Christ, so I can just kind of live out my faith by myself or, you know, with my family. I don't really need the church. And this, I would say, is increasingly one of the dominant mindsets in Western evangelicalism. And it's the result of an emphasis on having a personal relationship with Christ, almost to the absolute exclusion of having a corporate relationship as a church with Jesus Christ. But what we're going to see today in the Word of God is that God works corporately in his people. And he calls us to both a personal and a corporate faith. Our walk with Christ is personal, but our walk with Christ is also corporate. So what I want to do, I want to look at just a couple passages. Again, one from the Old Covenant Scriptures, Psalm 122. And then we'll get over to 1 Corinthians 12, which emphasizes some of the blessings and benefits of being together with God's people. And as we look at these passages, just ask yourself the simple question, what is my mindset when it comes to my faith? 
Do I tend to just think of it about, think of my faith as, you know, me and Jesus kind of hanging out, enjoying each other's company and letting him speak to me through the word? Or do, do I actually understand that there is blessing and great benefit to being part of God's extended people? So here's what this looks like. First of all, we approach corporate worship with an attitude of joy and expectation. We should want to be together with God's people. We should understand that there is blessing attached to being together with God's people. So way back under the old covenant, we have the Psalms written for us. The Psalms were songs essentially, and they serve different purposes. There's different kinds of Psalms. This Psalm happens to be called a Psalm of ascent, meaning to go up. And I'll describe this a little bit more momentarily, but essentially it's an invitation for God's people together to worship God, to come together, to ascend the holy hill, Zion, and to worship the true and living God. It says in verse 1 of Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. That is the 12 tribes of Israel all gathering together and ascending the holy hill. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David pray for the peace of Jerusalem May they be secure who love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I get it. This passage was written not to the church. It was written to the Jewish community, but they were the people of God. And under the old covenant, you probably know that while God is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere present, God chose to manifest his glory and his purposes primarily in and through the worship systems established in Jerusalem. So the people of Israel considered this a holy place. Now we tend not to think of God manifesting himself exclusively in certain GPS coordinates. We know that God manifests himself in various churches around the world. But nevertheless, even under the new covenant, God's people are called together, just like they were under the old covenant, to worship God together. This is why we have Hebrews 10.25. Do not forsake the gathering together of God's people. Don't forsake it. There's something in scripture under both covenants that mandates God's people to gather together in worship. And this particular Psalm of Ascent served as an invitation. Essentially, the Psalms of Ascent are communicating to the people of God, let's all together as one body worship God. Now, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just say, hey, you know, I'm in Jerusalem. You know, we're big into physical distancing. We don't want everybody there all at once. Or, 
you know, we don't want to leave the land unsecure, so it might be better to just bring you up tribe by tribe or village by village or family by family, or we know you have busy schedules, so just kind of come on whatever schedule works for you. I mean, God is God. If our relationship with God is merely personal, why, why would it be necessary? Why would God even waste time encouraging his people to worship him collectively? Is there something about collective worship that blesses us beyond what individual worship is capable of? I think there is. But before we get there, notice that the psalm is framed as an exclamation of great joy. They wanted to go. They were excited to go. It wasn't a drag. It wasn't like, it's Sunday again. <sighs> Come so quickly, so predictably. I guess we'll drag our family out to worship. There was a sense of joy and expectation. They wanted to encounter God. Here's the key. They wanted to encounter God together. They wanted to encounter God with one another. So three times a year, the way it worked at this point in Jewish history is three times a year during special festivals or celebration, people would come in out of the various villages and they would be invited to ascend the holy hill and worship God collectively. And then when they weren't there, they would gather in their local synagogues and worship God in that respect. And in this particular case, in the Psalm of Ascent, as they're ascending the holy hill to worship God, we see that they speak of certain things that bless them or benefit them that aren't present in privatized worship. And the first one I see in this text is corporate thanksgiving. The language of this text is very corporate rather than individualistic. And together, the text says, they recalled what God had done for all the what? For all the tribes. For all the tribes. Now, an immature Christian is merely concerned about their relationship with God. They're merely concerned about what God does for them, about the truth God speaks into their lives, about the promises of God as it applies to them. But the mature believer finds it within him or herself opportunities to celebrate what God is doing among other members of the people of God. In this case, tribes. We're not divided up into tribes. We understand that as churches. But under the old covenant, they would come together as tribes and they would celebrate what God was doing among all of the people. Now, one of the reasons why I was moved emotionally this morning when I heard those testimonies, and I, and I knew they were coming, but I was moved in the moment, is because I love to hear about how God is working in other people's lives. It just stirs my heart. I mean, I love God working in my own life. Don't kid yourself. But when I hear that God is working in people's hearts and he's helping them to overcome things like anxiety or alienation or bad decisions, and he's using the body of Christ, an online Bible study, mentors from small group. When I hear these stories, it stirs my heart and it reminds me that God is very much alive and well and he's working all over the place, often in unexpected ways. And then it crosses my mind, 
how many hundreds of more stories could be told that won't be told today of how God has worked just in this little church over the past year. And then we multiply that out thinking of all the other churches in our city, in our province, in our country, and around the world. And it's so refreshing to know and to offer our thanksgiving to God for the fact that God is continuing to transform people's lives. Now, if I just stay home and hang out by myself, I don't get exposed to how God is working among the people of God. So one of the choice blessings of being together is asking, how are you doing? What has God done in your life? How is God moving in your family? And having your faith affirm that the God we serve is true to his promises and he is working among the tribes among, uh, of his people. Secondly, and this may not be as evident at first read, but there is mention in the text of thrones of judgment. And where I'd like to take this is, I think this is a hint to us that one of the blessings of corporate worship is that corporate leadership is recognized and corporate leadership gets to speak truth into the lives of the people of God. Now, let me just do a little background talk with you for a moment. In our culture, and we're all students of our culture, we're all products of our culture, we have this strange, sacred, secular divide in this wall drawn between the two spheres of our lives. So we hear people say, well, you know, politics has no place in the church. And that sounds normal to us because we've heard that kind of language from the time that we're young. Because we think, well, well politics is anything that's said, any decisions that are made outside of the church. So we just kind of let politicians do their thing. And the church comes together and it does spiritual stuff. But if you think about it, this is an incredibly weird dichotomy. Because if your antennas are up at all, you'll know that almost every single political decision, whether you like it or don't like it or couldn't care less, by any party has some moral undertones to it. There's some worldview attached to it. There's some religion attached to it. There's some philosophy attached to it. And obviously, some of the political decisions are more overtly moral than others are. But I think one of the mistakes the church has made is we have separated civil life from spiritual life to the point that we think these are two different realms. Now, under the old covenant, it was a totally different dynamic because they lived under a theocracy where there was no sacred secular divide. So when they ascended the holy hill, they also ascended to the capital city. The capital city was also the capital place of their worship. And while they were there, the leaders of Israel would sit on their thrones of judgment and they would practice jurisprudence over the people. They would weigh in on issues of right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness. So they, they come to worship God they hear about what God's doing among the tribes, but they also hear from their leaders as their leaders exercise spiritual slash judicial authority, which were thought of as one and the same, over the people of God. Now, I understand we live in a totally different context, but I think it's also true, and we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about Christian leadership, and that one of the unique and choice blessings of gathering corporately 
is that we get to hear from our spiritual leaders. We get to hear the word of God taught. We get to be guided in worship and prayer. We are invited to participate in the ministries of the church. We are given direction. And this is a blessing that is absent if you're not part of the family of God. It's like, you just got to figure it out for yourself. You're going to have to figure out how to study your Bible. You have to figure out how to reach your neighbor. You're going to have to figure out how to tackle social issues. And you're going to have to figure out how to be a cultural theologian and so forth and so on. But we are blessed when we come together and worship because we are taught, we are directed by pastors, by worship leaders, by other people in our small groups. We are given direction to kind of help us to live in all spheres of life as successful followers of Christ. This is a blessing of corporate worship. And then we also corporately join together for prayer. Now the prayer of this passage is a prayer for peace and security. Peace and security. Corporate worship serves as an opportunity for us to come together and pray for the vital needs of our age, for peace, for security, for umpteen dozen other things that we want God to do that only God can do. In worship, then, we come together and we hear what God is doing in people's lives. We hear from our leadership. We collectively pray. Worship together helps us to see God working beyond ourselves. And that's a blessing. Corporate worship helps us to hear from our leaders. Corporate worship enables us to come together and to pray for our collective mission as the people of God. If you're going to get the most out of it, most mileage out of your spiritual journey, being part of a vibrant community of faith is fundamental to your spiritual maturity. In vital communities of faith, we can watch God at work in other people's lives, saving them, sanctifying them, equipping them. We hear God lead his people through the proclamation of the word of God, through training exercises and opportunities. We pray for the body of Christ and we watch God respond to our prayers as he descends with power, giving us clarity, equipping us for the work of the ministry, equipping us to endure and persevere and to think better. Now, on the other hand, you could say, ah, I'm still not convinced. Privatized faith is working quite well for me. Just hanging out with Jesus all by myself works out quite well. The problem with that is privatized faith can quickly become selfish faith. Where you start to think of God as sort of your genie in a bottle. Remember the genie in the bottle? You know, you rub the bottle, the genie comes out, gives you three wishes. You, you start to fixate on your own struggles. You ever done that? We're like, oh me, oh my, there's no one in the world whose life's as rotten as mine. And then you meet a few other people and you're like, man, I got it pretty good. Corporate worship takes us out of our own headspace, out of our own self-fixation and permits us to see God working in other people's lives. And of course, that stirs our heart to pray for them and disciple them and build them up. Privatized faith aids in secrecy. We don't grow when we tend to keep things secret from God, from others. But in corporate worship, we become accountable. 
People speak truth into our lives. We get to celebrate someone's growth other than our own. It aids in the specificity of our prayer. If you're by yourself, you know, your version of church is a couple podcasts a week and a few worship tunes on Spotify. If that's your view of church, you can't even really pray specifically for the people of God. You just have to, I guess, pray general prayers. Lord, uh, I don't know, bless your church, whatever happens to be going on out there. And I hope you accomplish your purposes somehow. I don't really know what you're doing, but do something. But when you're with God's people and you're living your life among God's people, you know what people's fears are and what their strengths are and what their questions are. And you're able to pray more specifically. And I find when we pray for other people, what it does is it takes you out of your own headspace and out of your own selfish zone. And it forces you to love on other people by thinking of others, by considering their circumstances and challenges. Now you're in church today. So in some respects, I'm preaching to the choir, as they say. But what we're talking about today is not only a good reminder, but it's something we need to teach to the next generation and to the generation after that. As we think just about our church here in little old Windsor, Ontario, and just one year in this place, again, it's hard to quantify everything that God has done, but we want to give you a few glimpses of that. And so we've heard from a couple folks in our church testify from Josh and Hannah and Sarah as to how God's been working in their lives. I can also tell you that in this place, 43 people have been baptized in the last year, which is a huge blessing as they have testified to their faith in Christ. Josh and Hannah were married. God has sovereignly worked in the lives of a few other couples. We had more than one wedding in this room this past year. And that's a huge blessing as well to see these newly married couples committing themselves to making Christ the center of their relationship and the understanding that marriage is primarily a reflection of the gospel. Pastor Chris mentioned earlier our thankfulness for God's financial provision. This is a big deal. Like it's not normal to pay off one-seventh of a 25-year mortgage in 12 months. But by God's grace, we've been able to do that. And this is a huge blessing for us and an affirmation of God's continued provision for our community of faith. We want to thank God for that. We also know that there's been some ugliness in life and in our church over the past year. Many folks have been confronted with the reality of their own pending death. And so many are fearful or have gone through bouts of fear as they've wondered what this current virus might do to them or their loved ones. We went through a period of lockdown where we weren't able to meet in person. And I'll tell you, if I were to rate the lockdown on a scale of one to 10, I mean, so thankful that Sarah was honest and said that she initially liked it and then realized it wasn't so good. But for me, it was like a nightmare from the very beginning not being able to meet with God's people and trying to figure out how to, in some artificial kind of way, still minister to God's people without any incarnational presence. It was hard, and it continues to be on a certain level. We've experienced some disunity in our church. 
Some people have left our church because they don't like our stance on reopening. Others have come to our church because they like our stance, but it, it causes, whenever there's relationships that are fractured, it hurts, and it hurts deeply. But due to circumstances beyond our control, we've experienced some disunity, perhaps not on the same level that some of my pastoral colleagues are telling me they've experienced. I have a friend that lost, I think, 18 families in his church over all of this. We've experienced spiritual attack. I know I've personally been attacked by dark spiritual forces. And many of you have as well. So there's been blessings and there's been challenges. But in all of this, we come together because we know we still worship a absolutely awesome God. And God is working in his people. And you lift my spirits as I hear and see God working in your lives. And your faith and your steadfastness and your commitment lifts the spirits of those around you. This is the blessing and benefit of being together in corporate worship. Let's head over to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we learn that we are incomplete Christians without the church. It says in verse 12 of chapter 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So we have an illustration given to us here that we all understand. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. This is a simple illustration. We all get this. This is an illustration that's not going to be lost on anybody. You think of your own body, get your eight fingers, your two thumbs, your ten toes, a couple legs, arms, all your internal organs. And like, when was the last time you thought, hmm, thank God for a small intestine? Probably haven't thought about that for a while. Thank you for fingernails. Probably haven't thought about that for a while. But if one part of your body is injured or diseased, suddenly you start thinking about it a lot, don't you? Both the prominent parts and the not so prominent parts. You get a little sliver in your pinky finger and that's all you can think about. It's getting infected. I got to get it out somehow. It hurts. And it's a reminder that every part of our bodies matter. Now we tend to just think about the prominent parts. So if I think of you, the people that I know, I think of your faces. I don't visualize your feet. I visualize your face. That's prominent. I don't know what your feet look like. But I know you have them, and I know they're important, and I know if you didn't have them, your life would not be as good as if you did have them. In the church, there's individuals that are more prominent and some that are less prominent. But make no mistake about it, everyone is equally important and necessary to reflect the fullness of God and his mission on earth. And this passage is meant to remind us of two things. That individually, you are not the church. I am not the church by myself. And we need each other. God has designed us for community. So it is with Christ, the writer says. And our unity is described in three ways. We are one in Christ. 
we are one in the spirit and we we're all baptized into one body. Christ is our center. He saves us. He rules us. That's why we call him our Lord. And he models for us Christ-like living. Christ at the center. He is our great pastor. He is our ultimate overshepherd. And then we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit equips us. The Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit leads us. What a huge blessing to be on the other side of the cross and have an indwelling spirit inside of us who does all of these wonderful things for us. And so God moves in our church and we may not always see it, but when we look back, then we see it. We may not see God working in Josh's life or Hannah's life or Sarah's life in the moment, but then we look back and they tell us their story. And we're like, ah, oh, God's spirit was working. And God's spirit is continuing to work in your lives. Make no mistake about it. And in the life of this church to conform us increasingly to the image of his son. And then we are one in our baptism. In our baptism, we declare our common identity in Christ. What is our identity? It's grounded, it's founded, it's rooted in the person and work of Christ as he died and was buried for us and then resurrected from the grave. We have a common participation in his death. Baptism is not something that takes place, you know, five years after you're converted, after you've been run through the church's discipleship classes. Baptism is an initial profession of faith and identification with the resurrected Christ. We often say there's no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the New Testament, except for the thief on the cross who, for obvious reasons, didn't have the opportunity. But the normal pattern of things is that people would be baptized to declare their common identity in Christ. Now, let's think for a moment about our church. Just maybe look around you, see the people around you. In some respects, this is a rather eclectic and motley crew. Like if you look around, it's like in any other environment, would we, would we be together like this? We have diversity of interests, diversity of vocation. We have people from different countries, from Nigeria, from Iran, from Iraq, from China, from Poland. Um, we're different ages. We have different family structures we come from. What is it that binds us together? It's not our ethnicity. I mean, let's be honest. Some of us don't really even like each other. Like if we were just crossing paths in the street, be like, yeah, I'm not hanging out with that person. I don't have anything in common with them. I don't like their personality. They, they don't take an interest in me. So how, how did we all end up here today? Not because of anything natural, but because of something supernatural. Because Christ saved us. The Holy Spirit indwelt us. One baptism identified us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. So newsflash, you aren't the church by yourself. You aren't your own pastor. 
Jesus isn't working just in you. Christ is working in his people. And while we do have a personal relationship with Christ, don't kid yourself, we also have a corporate relationship with him. Here's some of the things you miss out when you're outside of the body, when you fall into the trap of privatized faith. Testimonies, you don't, you don't get to hear what God is doing in other people's lives. I've mentioned earlier and as we've witnessed this morning. Uh, evangelism. Yes, we can do evangelism by ourselves, but does the Bible not say that some are actually gifted at evangelism and others are gifted at teaching and some at encouraging and shepherding and so forth? I have found in my ministry that evangelism takes place best in a community. You meet someone, a coworker, a family member, and you start to introduce them to people in your church, in your small group. You take them to church services. They, the kids are in this, the uh, children's ministry and, and so forth. And God uses different personalities to shape us. If you were to say like, Aaron, who, who would be the number one person who you would say has impacted your spiritual life the most? I'd say, well, this person and that person and this person. A lot of different people have. And in the same way, when we gather together as God's people, God uses different personalities, different stories, different spiritual gifts to influence and bless and even lead people to himself. I've seen it happen over and over and over again in our own church here in Windsor. We also have opportunities to be prayed for and to pray intelligently for other people. How about all the one another's of scripture? We did a series on this a couple years back. You know, the scriptures love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, forgive one another, all these different one another's. One another requires someone other than just you to be in relationship. So we have all these biblical injunctions which require fellowship to even practice them. We miss out on the, those when we stay all by ourselves. Accountability, which is a huge, huge blessing. Discipleship, all of the spiritual gifts. I might have, I don't know, two or three spiritual gifts. You might have two or three spiritual gifts. We are not the complete body of Christ by ourselves. And coming together, we benefit from the blessing of spiritual giftedness. Let me also say that our vision of church is not come in, sit down, watch the show and leave. That's not really that much different than online church. I think one of the reasons why we have an increased number of Christians say, I don't mind online church. Well, it's essentially, that's how they've been acting on Sunday morning anyway. They come in, they watch the show, they leave. That's not biblical church. Biblical church is you are communicating, you are getting to know, you are asking questions, you are meeting for prayer, you are fellowshipping together, you are serving one another, you are loving one another, you are bearing each other's burdens. That can't happen in one door, in the pew, and out the other door. You have to get connected within the body of Christ. I know some people that have come to our church that have seen that and love it. And others like, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. But they continue to plateau because they don't really want to be part of the body. And they're ripping themselves off of the blessings of being together with God's people. Why would God give us this truth, this teaching, if it wasn't for the fact that we are blessed in an extra special way through corporate worship, corporate evangelism, corporate prayer, corporate fellowship? So let's commit ourselves 
in an increasing way to living our lives in and among God's people. Let me say this, church. When you go out those doors, you are literally entering a battle zone. A spiritual battle is raging all around us. And the likelihood of you surviving by yourself if you isolate is slim to none. But being part of an army of Christians that worship the same God and are pulling in the same direction is what will get us through with God's help. Don't be scammed. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. You ever get these irritating phone calls, by the way, recently? They come up on my, my phone like every week. It's like, hello, you have been contacted by the Canadian Revenue Agency and you need to immediately call the following number and we need you know, your credit card or whatever it is. I'm like, come on, who's going to fall for that? You've called me like 50 times. I've hung up halfway through it every single time you keep calling me back. But you know why they do it? Because sometimes people are asleep at the wheel. And they're like, oh, I better call the number. Here's my MasterCard. I don't want to get in trouble with the prime minister. You have to be alert spiritually or you will get scammed. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's sneaky. He wants to eat you up. He wants to destroy you. And it's absolutely necessary in a fast-changing world. We're no longer just post-modern. We're post-Christian. We're post-truth. We're post-morals. I mean, we're post-brain in our culture. The stuff that's taking place in our world is nuts. But when it happens incrementally, you can get taken down too by the insanity. So we need to keep our spiritual antennas up. And part of the way we do that is through fellowship because other people speak truth into our lives and we have blind spots. We're not quite processing things the same way. And then on a positive note, we can hold fast to the promises of God. So this is stuff for us to consider as we hopefully get another year of opportunity here in Windsor and abroad. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, as Paul kind of enters the twilight years of his ministry and speaks to Timothy, he says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What a wonderful truth. I, I, I got to admit, when I was quite young, I often thought that was an old guy's verse. You hear the old people, oh, finished the fight, you know, fought the race. It's like they're almost dead, right? But this is a verse for us to consider every single day. Because we must persevere. We must remain faithful. We must stay true to God's word. We cannot flounder. We cannot falter. I, I know it can be tiring and exhausting, but we got to keep it up. We have to keep fighting. We have to keep praying. We have to keep pushing back. We have to keep taking territory. Can't fall asleep. Can't get distracted. We loved his first appearing. We're looking forward to his second appearing. We need to stay the course. So church, as we look forward to 2020, 
2021. Let's press on. Never give up. Stay alert. And let's fight the good fight together as an army of soldiers under the command of our great God to his honor and glory.